You're listening to MHD Off The Record. On this episode, we're talking Black business history with independent public historian, writer, and researcher Yolanda Hester. She highlights lesser documented stories and helps them find their way to the historical record. Her work has included exploring the history of Black business in LA for the Center of Oral History Research at UCLA. Enjoy the show. Great to be here. I don't know when this is going to air, but it's 90 degrees outside today. <laughs> um, and it's still supposedly winter. Or did we get spring? We're in spring now. We got spring, so we're a week in the spring and it's 90 degrees. So it's great to be here. Siobhan, thank you for all your help on this, making this a reality. So we're here today with Yolanda Hester. Uh, you all heard the introduction at the top of the hour. Uh, I'm very excited reading up on your project. I consider myself, anybody who listens to this podcast knows, I consider myself a student of history, uh, both uh, making sure when historic moments happen, I'm there to observe it and read and write about it, but also looking back for things that I didn't witness and your work around looking specifically at African-American businesses uh, in Southern California is extremely exciting to me uh, because for lots of reasons, because there are different iterations of the black community in Los Angeles. And from what I can see from your work, you actually cover the different iterations of businesses that go with along with those time periods, right? Mm -hmm. So whether it was uh, black folks or people of African descent who came to Los Angeles in the beginning who had been in Latin America for usually because their families escaped slavery from Latin America to folks came, who came at the beginning of the movie industry to the big iteration, which probably most people trace themselves back to what's referred to as the Great Migration and to today. Uh, so uh, talk to us, uh, just give us a little bit of your story. How'd you get to the point where this was the topic that you wanted to study and write about? So thank you so much. And um, I'm really excited to be here. Um, so I, uh, you know, part of where my interests um, originated was in the fact that I have entrepreneurs in my family. Um, for generations, there have been family members, grandparents who have owned small businesses. Sure. And these are small businesses that kept their family afloat and benefited the community in some way. They were helpful to their community and they sustained uh, uh, their little network of support. And um, I was doing my graduate degree at UCLA in African American Studies. And I wanted to explore that. And I wasn't, you know, there are plenty of uh, histories of specific, you know, entrepreneurs, specific businesses out there. But I really wanted to make that connection between the work that entrepreneurs do in a community and, and the support that it creates for the community. And that's part of the reason why it's called community and commerce. And um, to that end, for the project, I focused on specific areas because I wanted uh, to interview people whose stories overlapped, different uh, business owners whose stories overlapped. So I focus on mostly South LA and Pasadena because they have a rich history of African-American presence and African-American entrepreneurship that goes back to the late 1800s. Wow, and so how many, I'm just really curious, uh, how many people did you interview? So for this project, I interviewed 19 business owners wow. for 18 businesses. Wow. And we could have done more because uh -huh. there's a lot more, you know, black sure. owned businesses. But sure. um, we had, you know, 
we had a particular grant, so that was our funding I see. limitations. I see. Any plans to expand on the work or dig, try to dig hey, deeper? If I could get a grant for it, I will do it. Well, <laughs> I love it. Talk because, to some people about that. Because you know, we didn't. I didn't get to cover Watts or Compton or Long Beach. Um, I have one Venice business. Pacoima. Business Pacoima. There's one business in the group that's from Gardena. And that has a very interesting African-American history. So there were lots of areas that I wanted to cover, but I wasn't able to. Wow. Uh, well, it's, it's it's very, very exciting uh, work. You cover some of the high-profile businesses, the, the businesses that made a cultural impact or a historic impact. Shindana Dolls, obviously, is is the big one. Tell us, uh, tell us, just give us a brief history, because I think most people don't know about Shandana Dolls. Sure. Give us a brief history, and then uh, I would love to hear how you intersected with it and, and uh, how you came about that, came up on that story. Sure. Um, so the, the Operation Bootstrap Shandana Toy Company work that I do is not included in the oral histories. It's not one of the ones. Both of the founders of those two organizations have since passed away. But I went to a symposium at Cal State LA on Freedom Summer. And um, a friend of mine was involved, David Crittenden, he's also a historian, he was involved in putting together that symposium. And he, along with um, some of his colleagues, did a you know portion, a session on the Operation Bootstrap. And I was fascinated by the history and also I was just curious why I hadn't known about the history, given the impact that they had. Um, just to give a little overview of Operation Bootstrap and Shandana, two, it was started by two activists, Lou Smith and Robert Hall, in the aftermath of the Watts Rebellion. They, uh, Lou Smith had just come back from Freedom Summer, and he was an activist for CORE, and he was sent to Los Angeles to be the Western Regional Director. And Robert Hall was working for CORE on the ground here. And um, they met through core meetings. And then uh, shortly after the Watts Rebellion happened, and they really wanted to do something that impacted the community. And um, there were a number of organizations, artists, you know, people who cared about the community who initiated lots of programs in the aftermath. What was particularly unique about Operation Bootstrap is how involved the community was in shaping what Operation Bootstrap was. And ultimately what it did was, at first, it provided um, job training for folks because that was one of the issues. Unemployment was very high in uh, Avalon, which is what that neighborhood was called at the time. And so there was job training and it just sort of, you know, there was like a domino effect of other needs and services that it provided. Ultimately, um, it was a success. And in an effort to retain a degree of autonomy uh, without the sort of uh, input from, you know, what happens when you get monies from grants and founders and public money, they leaned into entrepreneurship. And they uh, developed a number of businesses. They had a gas station, they had a clothing shop, they had a sort of African clothing factory, uh, fabric factory, um, but they also started the Shandana Toy Company and that was their most successful business. And it was the one business that went national and then to some extent international because they did sell the dolls internationally. Wow. Well, I was just curious, when they created the Shindana Toy Company, why did they decide to make it more of a co-op? Because I was reading that it was a cooperative business. 
It was a for-profit company. The the uh, Operation Bootstrap was non-profit. Okay. Shandana was for-profit. Some of the profits from Shandana did support some of the uh, work of Operation Bootstrap. Um, but the, they wanted the community involved. I mean, it was the Shandana Toy Factory was on 61st and Central. Operation Bootstrap was on uh, 41st and Central. And uh, Shandana employed most of its employees from the community. I think at one point it probably had 75 up to 100 employees. And they mostly came from the community. They made all the major decisions. I mean, part of the success of Shandana was that the dolls and the toys had a level of authenticity that people hadn't seen before. And that is attributed to the community's involvement in the business. It, it's true that Shandana makes the first black doll or the most widely distributed black doll to that point? Well, it's credited with creating the, the first ethnically correct doll. And that's really uh, a branding terminology because yeah. other people have attempted to make dolls and they were well-intended. Yeah. And, you know, they had a sense of what they thought would be an authentic black person, you know, black child, and they wanted to replicate that. Um, but a lot of those efforts fail for a lot of different reasons. Shandana was one of the ones that was successful and it just really, the doll resonated with people. There was just something really, you get the sincerity and the authenticity really came through in the products and, um, and people picked up on that. And to be specific, there were some dolls that had curly hair, there were dogs that had big cheeks and our, our type of noses, and mm -hmm. um, a lot of other toy companies, in fact, none of them really had that. From what I understand, watching mm -hmm. the documentary that you consulted mm -hmm. on for KCET about the Shandana Toy Company, they were saying that the dolls initially, the black dolls were pretty much just the typical white dolls that they painted brown. And so they didn't have any of the features that would connect with a child who would see themselves in that doll. It's like mm -hmm. a Cabbage Patch doll that come, comes in all yeah, colors. But exactly. it's not actual, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and a little bit of that goes back to economics, which is what is one of my core interests in this work. And, you know, you have these factories who are producing dolls, and uh, maybe someone in the company, you know, puts forth the idea of making ethnic dolls but they don't want to change the sort of factory uh, well, process. The exactly, mean, the molds. Yeah. And so they just yeah. kind of do it in the most superficial way. Mm -hmm. And I think that was one of the amazing things about Shandana is that they actually own the factory. It was not a toy shop or you know a toy store on 61st and Central. It was a toy factory. So they actually produce all of the dolls and the toys um, and, uh, you know, people, like I said, people in the community were the ones who got to make decisions on what all of those items look like. Well, that's that's amazing. I mean, that's I think, you know, Siobhan's question brought brings out an interesting point of conversation about having a community driven business mm -hmm. as opposed to a profit driven business. Mm -hmm. You can have a community driven business that makes a profit. Uh, mm -hmm. But if you start off only looking at profit, you're going to take the mold, the old mold there that costs you nothing and yeah. just do you're going to do it the cheapest way possible yeah and uh, you don't get that authenticity and you know one of the things that I uh, track often this is amazing because I actually didn't know they owned the factory I thought they leased the factory from someone else mm -hmm. um, you know Los Angeles becomes one of the toy manufacturing capitals of the world yeah shortly thereafter you know by the late 70s and into the 80s we get the toy what's now called the toy district downstairs 
town, which is just up the street from this, mm -hmm. and we get Mattel toys. And Mattel eventually acquired Shindana, is that right? No, they supported Shindana. They gave oh. the seed money. Oh, interesting. So, um, and that's, that's, uh, an interesting story and there's yeah. more exploration that's you know gonna you know i'm gonna look into that part of the story more but they gave the seed money really to shindana and it was from what i have um learned from you know you know public things that are published on it that it was no strings attached um but that this you know that note, only we should, every corporation should hear this yeah. now like if you want to help yeah. Make someone a no strings attached seed uh, funding gift. Yeah. But I think that's also attributed to how the civil rights movement at that time and then its sort of interpretation of it in the West with the Watts Rebellion impacted people. Mm -hmm. They wanted to do something. And so they got the seed money, but the money itself, um, I would say, was not the thing that made them a, a success. What uh, Mattel also did was open their factories and people at their company to teach them some of the wow. skills. And I think that was the major, you know, resource that they well, got Well, it's from all major because you don't own a factory from donations. Yeah, like, you absolutely. Got, you need capital to, to yeah. buy a factory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And but then you need to know how. And then you need to what, know what to do with the yeah. factory, right? How to run it, how to make yeah. it, make money and all the rest. That That's really an amazing uh, story, especially since I honestly never heard of it until I was researching your work. I honestly never heard of Shandana Toy Company. I never heard of Operation Bootstrap, and I lived in LA, South LA, my entire life, <laughs> and I've never heard it. Also, okay. something else that you do is you highlight the fact that there are businesses that still exist here today. Shandana Toy Company, unfortunately, mm -hmm. isn't here, mm -hmm. um, but there are companies that were started at that time that still exist today. And we don't even know that they were there that long. We don't have their establishment date, you know, their founding date. Mm -hmm. And that's important. I know that that's something that you're, you are very intentional about yeah. in this project. Yeah. Why is it important that we know when these businesses started? So the oral history project I did, which was what with the um, Center for Oral History Research at UCLA, um, when we started that project, the criteria was to find businesses that have been around for 25 years or more. And the reason why we wanted long-term businesses is because they weather change and they could speak to you know how they you know stayed afloat. And so, but when I went to look and identify businesses that have been around for that long, it was very very hard to find. I mean, most of the businesses I interviewed have websites, but many of them did not have their founding date on their website. And I was shocked by this. I mean, I. I, I assume that that would be one of the first things you put on your website is a, you know, a little bit about your history, who started it and your founding date. But I also know that you know small business owners are busy with so many other things and that might not be a priority. Um, so yeah, that's one of the things I encourage. Please put your founding date on your website. You know, it gives a sense of staying power. It lets people see that there's been a black presence in certain communities for a very long time. Um, and I think there's something attractive about it. I think it will generate business to know that, wow, this, this, this cleaners have been here for three generations. You know, people want to support those types of stories. Um, you raised so many important things and questions in my mind with your, your last answer. But to go back to Siobhan's questions about, mm -hmm. this is one of the, my pet peeves, I guess I'll call it. And things that I discovered uh, in the role as council member, and particularly when we, when we were trying to do Destination Crenshaw, mm -hmm. 
The history of black people in LA isn't really written a lot of places at all. You have any ideas about that? Why that's the case? I mean, other cities, oh, you know, I went to college in Atlanta. Do you, there's like a small library of books yeah. about black people in Atlanta, black churches in Atlanta, black businesses in Atlanta, black women in Atlanta, yeah. black contractors. I mean, it's just, and you go to Cleveland and you get it and you go to, and Los Angeles, there's just, there's just not yeah. documentation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you are correct. There's a handful of books out there that speak to the history of black Los Angeles. Um, and this is a city with a ton of research universities. Right. And usually that's what, you know, cities that have a lot of research universities, they have books about those cities. But I also think, you know, now you're making me think that HBCUs are important keepers of black right. history and black life. I think that's right. I, I, I feel that's the one mm -hmm. thing that I've come on, come up on that's material. Mm -hmm. The material difference between Los Angeles and all those other cities have black colleges, but even in the Northeast, they have proximity to black colleges. Yeah. So Howard's there and other schools are right there. It's a, it's a very fascinating thing. I mean, the, Another one, I'm curious if you did any work on this one, and if you didn't, it's a big deal. It's not a big deal, but you know, one of the most prolific businesses my entire childhood, I didn't realize it was a black owned business until I was in my 30s. That was the Thomas Brothers. The maps? Yeah, wow. I didn't know till you just said it right yeah. now. The Thomas Brothers <laughs> map is a black owned company. Wow. The Thomas Brothers are black. Were they located here? They were located here. They were demographers for, I think, the county or the city. I think one was the county, one was the city. Mm -hmm. So that's what they did in their day job. And so they, at night, they were like, oh, people could use a map. And so they would, you know, they went and they, they made a map. And they got it printed at Printco, which was the big black printing company downtown. Now, you know you just started something. Now, <laughs> I'm gonna, like, now we're going to have a whole other research path. <laughs> well, but it's, it's it, when I was looking at your stuff, I kept looking for that. Because that yeah. is probably... I mean, that's a black business that no one who lived here in the 80s, mm -hmm. 90s can say they didn't use or didn't yeah. know about. Because literally every car you got into had a... I'm still Thomas stunned by that. Yeah. Like, you literally just dropped some new black history on me yeah. like, wow, right I now. Thought, uh, I did not know that. Well, and all this research I've been doing even for this episode, yeah. that never you know, came they, up. They were low profile because they okay. were really... They were not sort of... I, I, mean, I don't mean this in a, a, a critical way. They weren't like community people like that, like mm -hmm. at the church and at the community meeting and in the NAACP and at the gala dinners, they weren't those kind of guys. Mm -hmm. um, so they were very low key and they didn't go around advertising, like they weren't on the cover of the Sentinel say, hey, look at us. Right. They would just sort of quietly do their map every year. Yeah. Um, wow. And you know, when we, so with the oral histories, we chose businesses that are currently active and all yeah. of the businesses in the oral history are still active today and have weathered COVID, mm -hmm. thank goodness. Um, but when I was doing the research, I and we shifted over to doing the online exhibition website that we have that yeah. we drew from the oral histories. Tell us how to get to that. Okay. That is on, if you Google Community and Commerce UCLA, it will Got take it. you to that okay. website. Good. And um, so... To do that project, it was important to do some research beyond just these uh, 18 businesses. And what I found, it's very, very hard to find information on businesses that are no longer here, African-American businesses that huh. are no longer here. Um, it's just, you know, there is no committed 
research or publication to African-American businesses. I mean, there's just a little bit sprinkled here and there throughout a few books, some articles. Um, and, you know, most of that is from businesses that, you know, were existing when social media and the Internet came about. So businesses really? before then, it's very, very hard to find information on. Interesting. Um, you know, when I was, because I went to an HBCU, one of the things that I did, and and I'm curious if this was helpful to you or if you were able to do it, was at the HBCUs, at least at the Atlanta University Center, it was one of the only places where the black newspapers in the country mm-hmm. were on microfiche. So I could go back and look at the Sentinel from yeah. 19 whatever I wanted to, and I could look at the California Eagle. The only place I know in town, oddly enough, in Los Angeles that you can get that is at the Southern California Library for Social Research on mm-hmm. Vermont. Um, but it's 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 interesting because when you churches, black churches don't have this problem. They usually can trace themselves back through families, and when they mm-hmm. bought the building, the deed is somewhere. But black businesses, one of the only ways I only things I've seen is the advertisements in those papers. Yeah, because. That, you know, that was your only way of really knowing because nobody, people didn't leave a paper trail for what their businesses were. Yeah, absolutely. So it's so funny uh, that you mentioned that. Um, I wanted to include the Sentinel in this uh, this particular series. Yeah, because it's been around. Yeah. yeah, it's been around for a long time. Uh, but at the time, uh, UCLA was wanted to do a project just solely on them. So... You know, oh, I didn't want to be solely on the Sentinel. Yeah, got it. Okay. Um, but I really wanted to do uh, interview that owner. I mean, interview the owners of the Sentinel because the black press has been so important. Um, and of course, um, there is not only a history there of the business itself, but a history that they've participated in and recorded on their own. So, um, so you know, hopefully that project will will you know kick off. But um, I think the Black Resource Center also has some. Oh, and uh, on El Segundo. Yeah. And, and, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I believe they, they have, have some. It, They have the papers. Yeah. Because that's a really good, you know, to, I know a lot of things I didn't know about. I found out through, mm-hmm. through that. But one of the things that you do that's interesting is you talk about the different eras of mm-hmm. black businesses and the different formations. Can you kind of explain that uh, way of looking at, at history? Yeah. So I'm really interested in commercial districts, um, black commercial districts. And the reason why is because it's so relational, you know, and economics is relational. And people uh, support one another. They learn from one another. Business owners talk with one another. Um, and so I wanted to frame this, the um, the history part of the website around like, well, where were the commercial districts? Because people congregated, you know? And um, what I discovered is that, you know, downtown LA was our first black commercial district in Los Angeles in the late all. 1800s yeah. to the early 1900s. And, um, and then, you know, people started to move south down Central Avenue and that became, you know, a huge commercial district. Um, that was during the golden era of black businesses. And um, there were a ton of black businesses up and down Central Avenue. And it wasn't just service oriented businesses, which have always been more accessible to black people than other types of businesses. There were manufacturers, there were, you know, insurance companies, there were other businesses, um, wholesale businesses. 
um, that were part of that Central Avenue strip. So that's really in it. Like if, if someone wanted to study, you know, black business history, a focus on Central Avenue, I think would be very important. And yeah. then there's Crenshaw. Yeah, well, Crenshaw is the, the new iteration mm -hmm. of it. Well, it's interesting. So we have Central Avenue, you know, and then for a time, very short window of history that it was Vermont and mm -hmm. now it's Crenshaw. But really, in a, in a way, boulevards are over because mm -hmm. our most some of our most dynamic black businesses now that are located here operate in cyberspace. I mean, yeah. the most dynamic businesses in the world operate in cyberspace, yeah. but the black businesses are no different. So even though it's someone in a garage in Hyde Park, the mm -hmm. where it shows up is yeah. on the is is on the Internet. Yeah. And it's created. It's very interesting because part of the reason why like black commercial districts are you know, located where they are, um, or why the black communities are located is because of segregation and all that Jim Crow culture. You know, even if people didn't have the Jim Crow laws, they had the Jim Crow culture that they had to deal with. And so we got hemmed in to certain parts of the city, you know? And, um, and that always created an economic problem for black businesses in terms of participating in the bigger, you know, broader economic market, right? Where people who are not in the community, where are they gonna come to the community to buy the services, you know, um, all of that was in play. Now, now since businesses are online, it creates a sort of democracy, right? Right. Because they're not tied to brick and mortar for one, which makes it cheaper, but they're also not tied to a specific ge geography, like people can live anywhere. So it'll be interesting how that plays out and if that ends up becoming a real pronounced economic benefit for African-American business owners. Well, and also in the service sector, one of the, the, one of the dynamics, like if I go to a dry cleaners, right? One, in a place like Los Angeles, mm -hmm. and I get ready to choose a dry cleaners, I'm gonna wanna choose one where people understand what I'm saying, mm -hmm. so that's first. Secondly, I'm going to go to one, if I'm black, I have to think about, am I going to be mistreated at this place? Mm -hmm. Like, are they going to lose my clothes and say it's my fault or, you know, treat me like, oh, we'll take your, you stand outside and we'll take your clothes, you know, put your right. clothes in that basket. We don't want to touch you. So you have to think about that. Yeah. So a lot of those things funnel you into uh, these particular places mm -hmm. where it's like, okay, I know I'm going to find a black person and I'm going to be able to communicate with them. and chances are they're gonna treat me right unless they're having a bad day. Mm -hmm. uh, the internet, you don't, like, there are a lot of black businesses on the internet that are not black facing, right? Yeah. So they, you don't know who's running the business at all. Like yeah. it, it, the humanity is taken out of it. The relational part is taken out of it altogether. Mm -hmm. So it'll be interesting to see what that does to, to the next generation of black in, businesses. In fact, yeah. you also have non-black owned businesses with black, Face, that are black right. facing online yeah. right and you know that's another thing I was thinking about the ways in which technology can impact and influence the business um, and entrepreneurship that we have now in both um, positive and maybe not as positive ways mm -hmm. and I'm just curious actually both of you what would you guys predict to be the impact of technology moving forward for black businesses in Los Angeles in particular you know I have done the, the least research and have the least real knowledge, so I'll talk first. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, so I think the internet does a lot to increase the ability to distribute. So you can distribute all over the world instantly. You can sell to everybody right away, which is a big deal. But I think, you know, uh, uh, back to a point uh, that you made earlier about Shindana Dolls. 
Shindana Doll's contribution or their competitive advantage, the thing that made them successful in the same market as Mattel, a mm -hmm. big giant Mattel, the person who taught them was culture. So, uh, and the culture is a shared enterprise. Mm -hmm. No one person gets to decide what culture is. That's something that we have to do as a community, mm -hmm. right? So um, I think that'll continue to be the case and culture will still happen in place. I don't see how you do culture in cyberspace, mm -hmm. you know, it, because so many things have to be tested out and there have to be experiences and there has to be storytelling. There's just a lot of give and take. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it isn't like one person gets to decide a sneaker is happening. Right. It, it's a community thing. Like, I, you know, I'm old enough to remember when Air Jordans came out and no one would believe this right now. Believe it now. When Air Jordans first came out, the black community rejected them. Really? People, they were ugly. Well, first of yeah. all, they were red. Yeah, yeah. And you, with the red and blue thing, you didn't In make LA, a product absolutely. that was red. That was first. Yeah. And then, because if you were, if you lived here, like, if I wear red shoes, then I suddenly I have to think about where I'm going. I don't right. want to do that. And corporate's not thinking about that type of culture. Of course, how would they know? Right. How would they possibly yeah. know? And then the second thing was they were, the price was a little bit off. Not much, but a little bit off. Like it was, the price was ridiculous. It was laughable as opposed to being exclusive, which is, there's a, it's a, you know, mm -hmm. some uh, space in there. And then what happened was they made an all black version of the Air Jordan and they lowered the price. Now mm -hmm. you have the Jordan brand, which is the most, one of the most valuable brands. The point that I make with that story is all of that happens in a con, like that happens on the streets. Yeah. Like you can't. In, you can't uh, do. You can't have meetings and conferences yeah. to create that. Um, and for black businesses, I find that cultural uh, uh, culture is always the most accessible competitive advantage. It's what makes your it what makes your business the one place you can get this thing. Yeah. Right. Like you, nobody else can give you that. Yeah. Part of it. So I'll shut up now. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. And I think that's a really great point that, I mean, I think that the internet and all these digital, you know, formats, applications, whatever, they will always be tools. Like the actual, the, the product, the dynamic that always happens on the ground. I, I agree with you 100%. And it's funny because the technology, even using the analytics and the data, which mm -hmm. they which they use, you know, every time you do anything on the internet, there's data going back saying, oh, guess what, African-Americans like this style. What you'll notice is that when they try to market it, it becomes a problem with language. Then you're like mm -hmm. reading it and, you're, and it's saying, oh, buy these shoes for show. You know, <laughs> it just sounds ridiculous. <laughs> and, yeah. and you start, you see it a lot on Twitter, on social media. Yeah, you see you these social see media managers that are running like the Wendy's account. And yeah. you can see that they're trying to imitate it. Yeah. But like most things, you can always sense when it's off. So I think both of you guys are making a very valid yeah. point on that. And when it's out of context, I mean, I think that's what community is, is it's context. Mm -hmm. Yes. So when something happens in context, it looks totally different than when the same exact thing happens out of context. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the black community is very finessed on, you know, you know, finding that sort of lack of context, that lack of authenticity, you know, and we have, you know, there was the Apollo Theater version of that, then there became Black Twitter, and there's gonna be something <laughs> else. There's always going to be that critical, 
sort of uh, eye from the black community. We're always I'm, checking for authenticity. Exactly. Well, we're always checking for authenticity. And you know, the other thing we're always doing, and now I'm gonna get on my um, soapbox, we're always creating value for other people. Woo, the like, word. Black Twitter is not a real thing. Like it's, yeah. Black Twitter is owned by Twitter. Right. Yeah. It's their like, content. It's their con it's their platform. And in fact, many people would argue that that platform wouldn't have happened if black culture didn't decide. And black culture decided it because it was free. Like, not free. It was free in terms of money, but it was free in terms of there were no gatekeepers. If right. I think something's great, I can put it on there and people take it or not take mm -hmm. it. And the next day I can wake up and put something else on. And then the day after that until I hit. Yeah. So in that respect, um, you know, I don't have to get a loan from Mattel as, as an example right. in order to have something. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, the, this product, this platform blows up and these people become some of the wealthiest people in the world and we don't have anything to show for it. Right. Yeah. You know, the one thing that I think that was so um, profound about what Lee Smith and Robert Hall did was I think he, what they really taught the community was how to leverage. Yeah, yeah. How to leverage you know how to identify value within their community on their own terms and then how to leverage that yeah. for what it is that they needed um and that's the greatest part of their success for yeah. me personally and i think what draws me to that story it's not that they were able to sell dolls all over the country and some international buyers uh, purchased the dolls or that they you know got the attention of like the big you know toy makers it was literally for me that they taught a community how to look in their own community, figure out what the value, you know, what values and what they mean to them and leverage that for their own good. No, I, I think that that's right. And also they removed the mystery of having business because a lot of times yeah. what gets sold in our community, well, you don't have businesses because you don't know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And you need to come over here and we'll give you some training. And then at the end of their training, they're still, you know, they're still not the investment, which is why I really like the marrying of we're gonna give you training, yes. We're gonna give you an investment. And then after we do the training and investment, we're just gonna open up our factory and let you watch mm -hmm. what we do. That is really how you uh, invest in someone. And you take away the mystery, like, you don't, you know, no, you didn't need to go to school in doll making, yeah. right? Like you didn't need, you, you know, you didn't need 200,000 yeah. followers to have a doll company. <laughs> you just need to go in the doll factory and see what they're doing and seeing, you know, how you can make it work for you and put your own, uh, your own, your own spin on it. What do you think is next for a black business in in big cities like Los Angeles? Wow, that's a big question. Um, well, one, I think uh, more people are doing it. More people are yes. starting businesses. Um, you know, one of the things that I discovered when I was doing my research on um, so, you know, when I was in college getting my graduate degree, I did research on culturally designated communities. And my big question was, can there be a black culturally designated community? And I looked specifically um, to Lamarck Park because over the years, you know, the, they've tried to designate. Anyway, um, all this to say that, you know, one of the sort of challenges that these culturally designated communities have is how to uh, monetize their culture without diluting it, without making it authentic, without making it not useful to the people whose culture that is. And I think this will be the challenge as we move into these other spaces, we start to use more of these online tools, um, 
Yes, it's hard to know like who the owner of a business is online, but what I also see is that more uh, young entrepreneurs are completely comfortable with uh, creating a, a project, uh, I'm sorry, a product that is geared toward the black community with a broader, you know, there could be broader interest and uh, marketing and branding that and selling that. That has not always been the case for African-Americans. You know, we always had to consider other, you know, this big broad community in terms of how we market uh, our products or our culture. And I feel like that's happening less and less. And those companies are still successful. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. I think about the Doolins family uh, that had one of the most famous restaurant tour families in Los Angeles. And in the 80s, they had a, a restaurant called Ankizi's Back Porch mm -hmm. in Marina Del Rey, and it was wildly successful. And I remember being a kid being in there, and it always stuck with me because it, it didn't, I didn't feel good about it. Mr. Doolin, Mr. Alop Doolin comes, and we have family from out of town. And they're like, oh, you know, we want to open up a restaurant in Baton Rouge, so we're coming here to check out what you do. And Mr. Doolin looked at them and said, the most important thing is to be in a place where people don't have to be around too many black people to eat your food. Make it where everybody can come. I, I, shall, I will never forget it. Uh, and he was serious. I mean, you know, he was dead serious about it. And um, fast forward, you know, now Greg Doolin, Mr. Doolin's son, who runs Doolin's restaurant, like he wouldn't consider opening up a restaurant that wasn't in the black community. I mean, I guess yeah. he would consider it, but his locations that he thinks about now, he's like, oh no, we gotta be here. Like, yeah. it's not real unless it's here. So it just shows you how much the needle has moved on that uh, cultural point about where, where you're located, who you're near and all like that. Yeah. And I would imagine, you know, he probably said that because that's what he needed to do at that time. Right, that was the reality. You I don't know? think he was yeah. saying it to be mean, yeah. I was yeah. actually gonna ask that point or come into that because I was also thinking about how, if you look at the history of black businesses across the country in, in these business districts, there have been issues where they have been physically destroyed or destroyed in by policy in some way. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're online, that's not really the case. Like we don't have to worry about you know a raid coming through our businesses or, um, you know, like what happened in Tulsa, right? Mm -hmm. We don't have that same kind of worry online, mm -hmm. whereas, or even if in LA where there's, you know, they can create a policy that says, that makes it harder for black businesses to exist, mm -hmm. right? And what we see now with technology is that takes away that sort of um, fear that mm -hmm. we, I believe a lot of us also have in business, or as uh, Dr. Joy DeGruy has what she calls uh, post-traumatic slave syndrome, but she, uh, one time I was talking to her and she thought she brought up post-traumatic sharecropping syndrome, which is essentially sort of what explains our economic condition, not just our psychological one. And I always thought that was interesting. So what you guys are both speaking on, it's, it makes me think about the fear that a lot of black entrepreneurs may have had in the past about having their businesses destroyed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we should celebrate the progress, but we should always be on our toes. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> you know, uh, white supremacy has a way of just sticking around. Yeah. Yeah. And showing up just when you get comfortable, mm -hmm. when you're not, when you're not looking. I, so I think we're way over time. I could sit here for another 40 minutes, uh, but I want to uh, move into our lightning round. Uh, this is the section of the podcast where we ask you questions. You get to just take one beat and then give an answer. 
And we use it to build a compendium of people, places, and things in South LA at this uh, moment in history from uh, peoples whose opinions are influential. So, favorite song that represents South LA? Oh gosh, there's so many. Pretty much, it, probably anything by Kendrick Lamar. Wow. Okay, you have to pick one though. <laughs> no, 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 don't make me do it. Don't, yeah. I can't do it. <laughs> the whole, right. the whole, all of his albums, yes. all the songs. They're not. They're they're only songs because he needs to be in the market. Because they all like right. blend yeah. into right. one another. When I listen yeah. to them, they're more like sessions than yeah, they're songs. Exactly. I, I will agree with you on that, but I do still think you should pick a song. What historical black LA businesses do you think do you wish more people knew about? Well. Definitely the ones I've done projects on, but setting that aside, I am really interested in the history of the Watts Coffee House. Watts Coffee House. That's still happening, right? Mm -hmm. they, they've made it through the pandemic, yeah. right? Yeah, no, it's a good place. Yeah. Um, what South LA historical event or movement uh, would you like to see more highlighted? <sighs> My gosh, I would love it for there to be more research on Black Arts West. Wow. Okay. The Black Arts Movement, I think, is so undervalued. It's so under-researched. You know, folks can go to art history, do a, a graduate art history degree, and not understand the impact of the Black Arts Movement on, you know, the art and arts in, a, in the and U.S. That's, that's Los Angeles particular. Yeah. I mean, the Black Arts West is the Los Angeles version of it, but black the Black Arts Movement happened everywhere. It was a collective protest. Um, throughout the country from artists and poets and, you know, musicians and what have you. And it is so under studied, underappreciated, under misunderstood. Who are you, who do you identify as some of the icons of the Black Arts West movement out of Los Angeles? Who? Um, pretty much most of the, I have a great appreciation for the Black Assemblage movement. Uh -huh in in los angeles huh. and of course there are great folks like otterbridge and purifoy um but i have you know there are also women who are part of that who did not whose careers did not get the same attention and support like for example teresa tolliver who's you know still making art today yep. in her home in south la yep so um yeah i'll say teresa tolliver all right, Teresa Tolliver, are you involved in Destination Crenshaw? I am not. You are now. Uh, <laughs> you are now. Yeah. Because, yeah. Anyway, uh, Destination Crenshaw is really an uh, effort to create an explicit black arts district that, mm -hmm. uh, and, and a people's museum for black people that the train's going to pass through. So you won't be able to get from LAX to downtown or the beach without going wow. through it. And, Part of what's happening is that we're discovering a lot of this history and a lot of it's coming back up and we're finding artists like the ones you've named, which will have which will have installations. Mm -hmm. uh, they're already contracted to do major pieces of public art wow. in the Crenshaw district um, so that we, again, use culture to hold the space. Right. Wow. So that no matter who wants to move here, you're moving into a context and not just into yeah. a flat suburban generic neighborhood like Southern California is full of, yeah. right? Uh, we're really making an effort to do that. And it seems like you have a lot to add. So we're going to invite you to do this. So I'm going to get a fun one out of you. Favorite place to have a party in South Los Angeles. Oh my gosh. Favorite place to have a party. Or a celebration. Because when I'm in South Los Angeles, I'm at someone's house. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, well, that's. I mean, that's LA culture. Backyard, house parties. The backyard is, uh, the backyard is, is uh, pretty epic in these parts. Oh, yeah. Okay. We'll take it. We'll take it. We'll Very take culturally it. accurate yeah. answer. We know that you, you really do it. So, thank you so much uh, for being here. We really appreciate your work. We appreciate your contribution. And, and uh, thank you so much for being a part of MHD Off the Record. Thank you. This was so wonderful. Thank you for listening to MHD Off the Record and special thank you to Felicia the Poetess Morris of Morris Media Studios in Lamert Park. For more information, please visit mhdcd8.com and follow at mhdcd8 on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Don't forget to rate us five stars, subscribe, and share with a friend.